Hello, friends. Welcome back. I know it's been a long time. Um, Ethan and I went a little MIA there at the end of 2021. Uh, we've just been getting back in the swing of things, but here we are. It's 2022. Time's flying by, and uh, we're back. I think excited to be back. Uh, we got a lot of fun wine to talk about. A lot of stuff's going on these days. And Maddie, I was feeling kind of homesick, so we're going to talk about a wine region that's not on the West Coast, folks, believe it or not. That's right. We're talking about Virginia. We hope you enjoy. All right. So, Ethan, before we get into your hometown wine, or close to it, I guess. Close enough. Close enough, right? Um, I want to tell you a little bit about some latest research findings that I came across. So I was working on a presentation and I like to have, you know, like the numbers involved kind of makes things, you know, a little bit more real. And they just came out with a preliminary 2021 grape crush report for California. Ooh. And so essentially this document is like a hundred plus pages long. It's a lot to read, a lot to take in. But if you're like a wine geeky, whatever you want to call us, uh, you're going to love this. And I was just on it for honestly, it was like over an hour. I was like, oh my gosh, like, come on, get back to work. I mean, this is work, I guess, but whatever. So, of course, we're here in Napa, so I want to go to Napa Valley. And to give you guys a little bit of an overview, the Grape Crush Report will tell you, I mean, how many tons of fruit are crushed um, in various regions all throughout California, Um, and it'll break it down by region, and it'll also tell you the average cost and a bunch of other information. But essentially what I was interested in was the amount of tons crushed in various regions and also the price per ton that you would pay. And just to put that into reference, uh, one ton, I mean, this is a generalization that can vary based on many factors, but I like to say one ton generally yields about two barrels of wine. If you were to put it into barrel, that's about 50 cases or 600 bottles, just to put that into reference. So in 2019 in Napa, uh, Cabernet Sauvignon was sold for an average of $7,900 a ton which is a lot of money. And that's, you know, yeah. a lot of times people wonder why wine is so expensive in places like Napa Valley. Well, it all really starts with the land itself. And then, I mean, it goes from there. I mean, there's a lot of inputs. And if the grapes are going to cost almost eight grand, well, of course, you're going to have all the other inputs, the time, the labor, the barrels, whatnot. As you can imagine, it gets very expensive and it's not uncommon for it to go far above that. That's just the average. Now, 2020, as we know, was not the most pleasant year for a lot of reasons. Um, And we kind of just like brushed over that with the fires and whatnot as far as the um, average tonnage price. But in 2021, this was the very first year, Ethan, that Cabernet Sauvignon, the average price was over $8,000 a ton. Oh my gosh. So it was just just over eight grand for one ton of grapes. It's the first year in the history of Napa wine. Um, granted, I mean, again, you're coming off a year where you probably didn't make that much. So maybe there was higher demand. It was also a little bit of a lower yield because of the drought that we were in, in California. So there's a few different, a few different reasons why that's the case, but it's just crazy to see this kind of progressively increasing over the last, you know, decade or two, um, out here specifically in Napa Valley and many other regions, but to put things into reference too. Um, if we want to talk about Merlot, say you're a farmer out here, which there's a lot of farmers who just sell grapes to different producers and you have Merlot planted this past year, the average for one ton of Merlot was just shy of $4,000. Wow. So you're making less than half for one ton. Granted, you might have higher yields because Merlot is typically a little higher yielding. So you Mm -hmm. could have more per acre, but, um, you look at Zinfandel, Zinfandel was about $4,400 for a ton, but I'm going to throw like a wrench in here too. 
Cabernet Franc. We were out here in this industry. We, you know, we were talking to people in the trade all the time. Um, Cabernet Franc seems to be a buzzword. Everyone's talking about Cab Franc these days. Cabernet Franc went for an average of $9,200 this past year. But there were only about 1,200 tons crushed of Cab Franc in Napa, whereas there was 38,000 tons of Cabernet Sauvignon crushed. So there's very little Cabernet Franc, so I think the demand also might have some pull. But because it's becoming so hot and everyone loves to talk about Cab Franc, I can't help but wonder if we're going to start seeing more and more plantings in the next like five, 10 years out here. That's so interesting, Maddie. Um, and actually, I've always wondered that too, which is Cabernet Franc. It's become so popular and it makes some beautiful wines, not even just here in the United States, but also in France, like in Chinon. There's some great examples of Cabernet Franc. So there's some psychology that goes into the K sound where they've actually tested it out and people think it's like more sophisticated. So I wonder if that has to do something why it's so popular or just makes great wine. Who knows? Cabernet Franc, Cabernet Sauvignon, Maddie Kramer. Mmm, sharing your last name now on here, Maddie. Ooh, she's becoming (laughs) famous. Well, you bring up a good point to go with these these prices of grapes because that's ridiculous. Over $8,000 for a ton. And I know there's some vineyards out here that can go for four times that amount. Mm -hmm. A lot of people might not know this, but when it comes to making wine, you don't have to own a vineyard and a facility. You could have both. You could have one or the other. You could have neither. And you could still make wine, have a label, and sell it where, you know, you can buy grapes. You could sell grapes. You can have a little bit of both. Um, so, like, let's just say Maddie and I wanted to go make our own wine brand. Besides the whole licensing part, getting a label, corks, bottles, whatnot, before we even, like, make the wine, we're spending $8,000 just to make 50 cases of a Cabernet Sauvignon. Yeah. It's a lot of money. It is. And that's also, you leave Napa, prices are going to drop pretty drastically, even in Sonoma County. Uh, it's crazy to see the like, Cabernet Sauvignon is like almost like, it's like, I think it's less than $4,000 a ton. Yeah. So uh, that's just Napa as a whole. But of course, land's somewhat limited here too. That's crazy. But um, but yeah, I mean, based on our conversation today, I took the liberty of going to Virginia's Grape Crush Report and wanted to do a little comparison. Um. Cabernet Sauvignon went for an average of around $2,300. Wow. So, I mean, that's still not cheap, but no. it's, you know, a fraction of uh, what we have here in Napa. That's crazy. And I'm glad you brought up Virginia because um, let's get into it. And I see this bottle. Can I open this? Do you mind? Yeah, please open it. Okay. So well, we speaking are, of Cab Franc, I mean. Absolutely. Yeah, we're going to be drinking a Cabernet Franc from Virginia. Um, I have to stick a shout out to my sister, Ashley. Um, she probably doesn't listen to this podcast, but if she ever does happen to listen to this podcast, thank you so much for grabbing this bottle. She lives in Virginia. Um, and, you know, some backstory about why we wanted to talk about this. Well, we like to talk about regions that are outside the norm. And, you know, Virginia has a very long wine growing and wine making history it's pretty sporadic we'll talk about it it's still growing there's some phenomenal wines that come from this part of the country but also um, i'm from the washington dc metropolitan area i'm actually technically from maryland but you know i'm so close to virginia i also consider virginia home maybe down the road we'll do a podcast on maryland wine who knows but you know virginia makes a lot of wine so we're going to talk about that today but just as a refresher, I hope some of you actually are either living in Virginia or from Virginia. Virginia is the 10th established state in the United States. It's actually a commonwealth, Maddie, not a state. Do you know the difference? Nope. I don't either. I looked it up. A traditional English term for a political community founded 
for the common good. Well, it's a state now. Well, yeah, I, I think it's just synonymous. Mm. I don't really know. There's Maddie lots and I, of history out there. There's a lot of history. Maddie and I did not study poli-sci, but if any of you did, please leave a comment in the reviews about what a commonwealth is. We'll do some research after this. There's actually four in total. Can you name another one, Maddie? Gut reaction. I wanted to say New England, but I don't think that's fair. Uh, Massachusetts? You are correct. <laughs> I didn't know this prior to this podcast. I had to do research on that. Again, I think it's just like an old term. What are the other ones? Uh, Kentucky and Pennsylvania. Kentucky. Kentucky, yeah. Interesting. So next uh, podcast we do on bourbon, we'll, we'll visit the uh, Commonwealths, all four of them. Sure. Um, if you didn't know this beforehand, folks, you probably did. Um, well, now you know. So anyway, it's the 10th established state. It was one of the 13 original colonies. It borders the District of Columbia, of course, our nation's capital, um, south of Maryland, it's east of West Virginia, and it's north of North Carolina. Virginia is for lovers. It is, but it's not just for lovers. Some of the most amazing oysters come from an area called Chincoteak Island, which is actually where wild horses are located, Maddie. A story for another day, but there's wild horses that live on Chincoteak Island. That's pretty cool. And they have some of the best oysters you'll ever have from this area. The Appalachian Trail's out there. Arlington National Cemetery, it's one of those things that like just takes your breath away while you're there. It is absolutely incredible to see. Dirty Dancing was filmed in Virginia. Oh, mm-hmm. okay. No, that's one of your favorite movies. Don't put Maddie in a corner. Patrick Swayze. Patrick Swayze and Blue Crabs. And uh, I'm, I don't really care what anybody says. The best crabs in the world come from D.C., Maryland, Virginia. Um I dare you to challenge me. On have that you one. had the Dungeness crab out here yet? They're good. They're big. They're big. I feel like you don't have to work quite as hard for the meat. That's the one thing about the little blue guys. You know, that's the most rewarding part of, you know, sitting down with your family and friends. There's flies all over you. You have cuts in your hands because you're opening these beautiful, delicious crabs. There's vinegar getting poured in these cuts. You have to take like three showers afterwards, but it is so worth it. It is so delicious. And you get to drink a bunch of beer while you do it too. Beer? Stopping on Blanc, though, too. Yes, that's right, Maddie. And Virginia is also known for some incredible wines. Yeah, and honestly, so I, uh, my brother actually went to UVA. So I was able to visit him a few different times out there, and I was just blown away. Virginia is an absolutely beautiful state. And especially, I mean, that's, you know, we're going to probably talk about um, that area here, too, as far as wine growing regions go. But the rolling hills, it was absolutely ju- just gorgeous there. There's beautiful hiking. Um, but, I mean, it does remind you of other beautiful wine regions as well. It does. It mm-hmm. does, absolutely. So let's talk about, you know, how the history of Virginia wine even started. Um, because, yes, they make a lot of wine in Virginia. They make some incredible wines. But you don't typically think of Virginia when you think of wine being made in the United States. Well, believe it or not, grapevines grow throughout this entire country. Um, the American species. And I think, like, we don't talk about the American species that goes into, like, you know, our fruit baskets or the ones we buy at the store as often as we talk about like wine grapes because it's just they're not as glorified but they they grow abundantly especially in virginia so of course these european immigrants that you know moved to what became the united states um when they were establishing the colonies you know they come from an area where there's wines either being made or wines being sold to um so they noticed these grapevines growing what do you immediately think to do like let's let's make some wine 
We can't really drink the water. We don't know if it's good or not, but uh, let's just make some delicious wine. So this really dates back to like the 1600s with the establishment of the Jamestown colony um, by Captain John Smith. He was from the Virginia colony. That's actually where Virginia got its name. Um, there's actually a report that they made about 20 gallons of wine that were produced from grapes that actually grew along the eastern coast. It became so popular that actually they established something called Act 12, about a decade and a half later, where each head of the household in Jamestown, they were required to grow vines on their property. They had to have at least 10 vines to, of course, make wine from it. Now, was that wine for their own household or is that for the town to consume? You know, I'm sure it was both. Um, I'm sure they were trading the wines they were making. Um, unfortunately, like Everybody was excited. I mean, there was a lot of other things to worry about besides just making wine at that time, um, as in like trying to establish their own country. Um, and unfortunately, it just it didn't work out very well. And um, at this point in time, can you clarify the grapes that you're typically seeing? Yeah, yeah. So they're, they're American species. So like the Vitis Labrusca, okay. um, the other different species that you find that you, you eat. They're big. The skins are thick. There's a lot of juice on the inside. There's no seeds. There, you know, you can make wine out of them. Like as you know, Maddie, you can make wine out of anything that has natural sugar. Um, but the wines that they were making, they just they have this really odd aroma. They, the people like to say it's like a foxy aroma. And even back in like the 1600s, 1700s, people still didn't like that. Mm. And that's why you don't see a lot of wines made from those grapes still to this day. There, there has kind of been a renaissance for that. You are seeing a lot more producers throughout the country that are making more like American grape wines or like hybrids of such. And we'll touch on one of those in just a moment. But that makes sense too. You have all these like European immigrants. They're used to a certain wine style back home when they come here and then it's not the same. It's not, it's not the same whatsoever. And, you know, and I'm sure some of them stomached it, but I mean, this like, this failed like quickly. They, they decided like, let's not do this. There's also an abundance of like wheat grown throughout the East coast too. And, and rye. So what, can you make instead of wine, beer, yeah. and then beer turns into whiskey. Um, There's a lot of rum back in those days lot, too. Oh, a lot of rum. That was a huge part of like the colonial trade and whatnot. Um, and that's really what some people believe that started the Revolutionary War was rum. That we're not a conspiracy podcast. There's plenty of great conspiracy <laughs> podcasts, but uh, wasn't tea? <laughs> who knows? Who knows what you're mixing your tea with? Rum does have a big part, but what they were making there, you know was really like beer and whiskey and like actually like Kentucky and Virginia are attached and you know although we all think of like bourbon and whiskey as like you know just strictly Kentucky there's actually a lot of history that goes into like beer and whiskey in Virginia hmm. so it's kind of cool yeah um there's some like allocation laws that are just in Virginia and Kentucky with whiskey again we're not getting into that we're talking about the history of wine in Virginia Digress. um but yeah you should imagine they're kind of like okay the wines that we're making aren't they very good People started bringing vines over from Europe. They're like, okay, the ones that are here grown everywhere, yes, they grow really well here, but they don't make good wine. So let's bring our native vines with us. Um, and as you can imagine, that also didn't do very well. But there was one person in particular, the third president of the United States, Thomas Jefferson, who, huge fan of French wine, huge fan. He admired the possibility of, like, what Virginia could be. Because as you mentioned, Maddie, it's beautiful, especially in the Charlottesville area. And we'll connect that back to Charlottesville in just a moment. But he was in this area called Monticello, which is kind of like right in the foothills of the Blue Ridge Mountain Range. It's like sort of like central Virginia. And he's like, oh my gosh, like this does look like a wine growing region. I'm going to plant some grapes. And it doesn't do very well. 
So he decides he's going to reach out to a friend of his that lives in Tuscany or what is now Tuscany and uh, has him move to the United States with the help of Ben Franklin. They convinced him to move um, because this guy was a politician, but he was also a vigneron. So not only was he interested in you know the Revolutionary War, he was convinced by Thomas Jefferson to also plant vines here. So he brought about – they report about 10 to 16 different – they called them vignerons, but like different – plantings different cuttings from italy um from luca italy brought him to this part he had about two thousand acres gifted him from thomas jefferson and you know what he did he planted these vines and they failed there were some really bad frosts we'll talk about the climate in just a moment but they have some pretty harsh winters very unpredictable winters in that area trust me like i remember many spring breaks growing up maddie where it was 75 and sunny and the next day it snowed so it's like unpredictable there. So the vines uh, that aren't used to this soil, this terroir, as you can imagine, didn't do very well. So at this point, they're kind of like, all right, we're giving up. Nothing's working. Beer, whiskey, doing very well. Plus, we got a war happening right now. We really need to focus on that. However, right before Thomas Jefferson's death in Richmond, Virginia, Dr. Daniel Norton created this vine, was mm-hmm. crossbreeding, and he created something called the Norton grape, which he learned soon after that could grow well in Virginia. I've heard that they consider the Norton grape America's oldest wine grape. Is that cool? It is, yeah. That's super cool. Now, I should do more research on like how exactly it was made because it's, it's a crossbred American grape. So it's, it's American hybrid. So we're not crossing like Venice vinifera, the, you know, the European one with Venice labrusca, but it's like two different American species crossed. So it's it's native to this area. It can grow very well in this region. So it made sense. It grows. It makes wines that, yes, again, it's an American species. So the wines aren't the best wines in the world, but they were palatable. People can drink them. So now wines starting to have this renaissance in the early 1800s. It becomes the most widely planted grape, not in just Virginia, Maddie, but Ohio, the Ohio River Valley, um, and a place that's close to your home, Missouri. Mm. I think it's still one of the most widely planted grapes in Missouri. You know, I don't go wine tasting when I'm home too Mm. much. You're going to have to change that, Maddie. (laughs) So everything's good. They're focusing on Norton. It's growing well. And this is what year, typically? This is like 18, the early to mid-1800s. Well, people are making some pretty high-quality Nortons at this point, like especially in like the mid to late 1800s. A winery in Missouri submitted a wine made with Norton to the Universal Expedition that was hosted in Vienna that year, and it got a gold medal. That's pretty cool. Wow. A Norton wine. I mean, you hear these like cool stories about like Chateau Musar winning it, and, like from Lebanon and Virginia wine making it. How fascinating! I'd love to be like a, a judge in some of these tastings. One day, one, one day. day we'll do that was, it. So that was in eighteen seventy three. Eighteen seventy three. So like that's like they were ahead of time. Yeah, that's you know obviously that's like you know almost a hundred years before Judgment of Paris even. And you and I know a lot about like California wine history. At this point, we're like we're in the midst of like the California. Like gold rush, wines being made out in here, but like we're on the other side of the coast. It's kind of cool. So, of course, just like every other alcohol producing area, producer, whatnot, um, prohibition happens. And uh, yeah, at this point, it's still like pretty sporadic. As you can tell, it started in 1600s, kind of died off. Thomas Jefferson tried to revitalize it. Then kind of died off. Then with Norton, started getting a little bit better. But prohibition, I guess, you know, it prohibited you from 
making wine, unless it was for the church. Um, it just, again, this, this industry that had this really slow start just slowed down and almost went to like a complete stop at this point. But after Prohibition, same thing as California. It took a while for things to build back up. But some people, some new visionaries from, from Europe, from winemaking families, moved out to Virginia and saw the potential of what this region and what the state could be in terms of wine growing. They saw all the Blue Ridge Mountain Ranges. They saw the climates where some the soils are sandy and you can plant vines there. The unique terroir and it's just the, the various different soil types. Some of these visionaries noticed this and they said, okay, let's turn Virginia into the next great wine growing region in the U.S. And it's getting there. So a few different people like Gianni Zonin and Gabrielle Rouse, who are viticulturalists um, from you know northeastern Italy, they move out to an area like just right in the middle of Virginia where Charlottesville is located, and it's Barbersville. And they decided this is the perfect climate for wine growing, and that's where things kind of took off to the modern history of Virginia winemaking. In the mid-1980s, a gentleman named Dennis Horton, he became the first to plant Viognier to make for a commercial wine. Now Viognier is basically the staple variety of Virginia. So that's interesting. Um, with that, is it typically oak-aged or? They're the... typically richer styles because just the climate's hot and it's humid. So they typically have them aged in oak. They're really floral, really viscous, thick. Mm -hmm. Um but it's got this like own unique style that's, you know, you could see similarities with California Viognier. You could see similarities with like Quandary or Northern Rhone Viognier, but it has its own unique texture, in my opinion. And now, in addition to Viognier, I mean, Ethan and I have a Cabernet Franc right in front of us, which we'll talk about here in a bit. Um, but so, yeah, you'll see over 30 different varieties planted in Virginia now, which is pretty crazy. Um, so we have like what Cabernet Franc, there's Viognier, there's still a little Norton. Yeah, there's still a good amount of Norton. There's and like Petite Massang. Interesting. Um, yeah, I mean, we had, I think it was a little over a year ago, we had a Bordeaux blend. So we're seeing all these different varieties here, um, which I think is really great. And I think, you know, this is, I think it's especially cool for someone like me that's not familiar with Virginia wine quite as much um, to see these wines and see how beautiful they really are. Because I think you kind of get in this like silo of California wine or West Coast Napa wine. And there's a lot more to that, to the U S wine market. But I mean, the, I mean, obviously they have a different, very, far different climate than we experience on the West coast thing. I mean, you have the four seasons, like you were saying, like you can have some fairly like sizable, like snowstorms in the oh, wintertime yeah. and freezes of course, but the summertime it gets very hot, but it's also very humid too. And that's something that, I mean, fortunately, unfortunately, uh, I think fortunately we don't really have here on the West coast, um, which is why we get that huge shift from the hot days and the cool nights because there is no humidity. And that's something that I would imagine Virginia having such high humidity, you can, that's why you can still wear shorts outside past eight, 9 PM because it's still going to kind of have this like heat lingering in the evening. Absolutely. You're absolutely right, Maddie. And you know, I feel like it's reflected in the wines here, especially the only way that I have, we have right in front of us, like, it's unique that they focus on these grape varieties and they take great pride in these uh, complementary varieties. So think like the main grape of Bordeaux. It's either Cab or Merlot, but then Cabernet Franc's a complementary variety. Unique Cab Franc in your Bordeaux blends. Well, they're taking pride in Cab Franc grown in Virginia. Actually, it grows really well in New York too. And then like Viognier. Like, yes, it's grown a lot in the Rhone Valley, but really the dominant grape there is Syrah. 
it's a complementary variety. Mm-hmm. So like they're focusing on those two. And I think that's fun to kind of have this whole focus on like varieties you don't see a lot of, especially not together. Cab Franc and Viennet don't grow anywhere near each other in France. So that's just kind of fun that they tie that together. Yeah. Uh, well, there's a lot of diversity within the state as well. I mean, there's a number of different AVAs within Virginia and the soil types vary tremendously as well. We have rocky mountain soils. There's even sandy soils. And I mean, there's, there's vineyards on the coast, right? Like even near Chesapeake Bay, right? Yeah, there's an Eastern Shore AVA, which I go to the Eastern Shore every single year. Uh, I guess I need to go a little bit further south and find some vines out there. That sounds cool. Sure. Yeah. And you're right, Maddie. I mean, these mountain soils, I mean, some vineyards are at like 5,000 feet. That's pretty high up. That's higher than Napa. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, I mean, this wine in front of us, I think it's beautiful. It's, I agree. It's uh, King Family Vineyards. King Family Vineyards, yes. 2020, so it's a young one. Yes, my sister got this at a bachelorette party. She went wine tasting out there. I'm so proud of her. I think that's amazing. Um, <laughs> that's yeah, sister. I mean, it's so varietally correct. Like, it it smells like Cap Franc. It's got this, like, green character to it, mm-hmm. but it's ripe. And it's definitely more of that red fruit, like that red currant, kind of like raspberry character as well. I told you, but I was tasting a couple of days ago, and this winery um, had a – they were known for the Cabernet Franc. They had, you know, three cabs and one Cabernet Franc. Honestly – the Cabernet Franc tasted the exact same as the Cabs. You know, like sometimes like winemakers just like, it's all like, it's all made in the same style. And um, this, like you said, it's very varietally correct. And I think it showcases that, that like little green quality as well within. One thing that I'm looking at this bottle and I could tell right on the palate as well, it's a 12.3% alcohol, which is I think quite interesting too. Interesting. For a place like that can get hot and humid, mm-hmm. That's unique. But it does have a bit of that kind of green quality, which I think is really nice. More of like an herbal. I love that. And it's like, it's super floral. It's very approachable. I, I mean, I don't even know how much this bottle costs. I was supposed to Venmo my sister. I never did. Um, again, hopefully she's not listening to this podcast, but it's, it's cool. You know, and you know, they've gone through some, a lot of trials, a lot of challenges. They've kind of given up for a while back in the day, you know, but 200 years later after Thomas Jefferson, you know, tried and failed, they're now growing vines around where he lived in Monticello. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Virginia is such a beautiful place to, bl- to be. I-, I loved growing up in Southern Maryland, right on the, right on the border of DC and Virginia. Um, it's a great place to visit. I mean, also in the Blue Ridge mountain range, I mean, it's a beautiful mountain range. It was also one of the best restaurants in the country, the Inn at Little Washington. It's three Michelin star. It's a lot of cool things to do while you're out in Virginia. Um, no, but I will. Hopefully <laughs> One day. Yes. Um, but yeah, this wine's amazing. Shout out to King Family Vineyards for making such an incredible Cabernet Franc. Um, Maddie and I are definitely going to enjoy this for the rest of the day. Yeah, it's it's very refreshing. It's it got is. a great acidity to it. I, I mean, it's kind of somewhat simple, but it's beautiful. It's like, like you said, it's very floral. Um, I like this a lot. I mean, now, what, you said there was over 300 wineries in Virginia? 4,000 acres planted. 4,000 acres. That's crazy. So it's definitely, I mean, sometimes we say region on the rise. I mean, I think it's definitely on the rise, but I think it's already become pretty well established and to see that it's really taken off really since, you know, the the 80s, the 70s or so. Um, it's become really prominent. This is exciting. I, I love this. Yeah. Thanks for doing all the history too, Ethan. Um, I learned a lot today. Well, Maddie, thank you for being here. And I, I don't enjoy drinking with a brick wall so thank you for uh being able to enjoy this with me and talking about um the east coast and the wonderful wines that come out of there we just need to get ourselves some crab sounds good to me